Okay, so I think we're, we're operating. Is that correct? I've got people that seem to think that's true. We're going to be missing for two weeks, and this is not my fault at all. Raise your hand if your name is Dave. There we go. If you exist, somebody who may or may not exist is responsible for us not being uh, available on the 14th. Don't blame me. We will return the 21st of February. So this we're taking off because of the Super Bowl overwhelms us every year. And so this one, of course, belongs to the person who shall remain nameless, the unnamed one. How about that? Huh? Ooh, wow. Yeah. He, how does he do it? I know. I know. Uh, I got a real letter. Yeah, not not a digital letter, but a real one. And uh, and it's from uh, Wendy in Texas. And one of the things that just cracked me up. It says over here in the in the side. It says, "Give us longer lectures, please." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wendy, don't do not do not assume that that diabolical laughter coming out of the back is uh, affirmation. It may not be. I'm just saying. Anyway, I thought that was fantastic, and I always appreciate those kinds of things, just because I'm not normal. Okay, let's see. Glasses on top of the head? Maybe not. I don't know. Let's put them down here. What's that? At least the chairs the last two Sundays have been very Yes, again, that that particular couch folds out into a bed. It's always been my dream to provide people with rest, as you know. And that one will do it completely. You could stay there for weeks. Ah, January the 31st, 2021, lecture discussion number 129 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, and 2 Kings 23. And I have to say, today's lecture, all of them do this, but this one more so than most, so I'll have to tell you this. Today's lecture assumes that you heard lecture 128 from last week. And if you haven't, you're going to think, oh my gosh, What's this guy doing? Well, that's part of the problem of of my style is that everything builds on what was previous to it. First Kings 13 um, is the narrative of the unnamed prophet, uh, his assignment from the Lord God and his mystifying death. He gets an assignment. He goes forward with the assignment, I believe, undeceived, always knowing that uh, that this was the end of his prophet prophetic office. In other words, he understood that there was a death element to it. 2 Kings 23 is the uh, explication of Josiah, his effort to rid Israel of the great evil of child killing, something that we now see in our society and in our world at a rate that I think is unprecedented in all of human history. Josiah was going to get this out, this incredible wickedness, the killing of the innocent from the nation of Israel. And Josiah likewise has a puzzling death, just as the unnamed prophet does. He has a puzzling death at Megiddo, which you would recognize as Armageddon. So he dies at Armageddon. And obviously the unnamed prophet and Josiah have to be calculated as two parts of an aggregate. Uh, all under the canopy, if you want to think of it that way, of the person of Jesus Christ, which, of course, is the principle of John 5, 39. 
that is the underlying principle of all of the Old Testament. So recognize that. That is the verse, just to make, just in case you're, this is the first time you've been here. And thanks for coming, and uh, some of you have already left. I'm kidding. Well, maybe not. John 5.39 elucidates what the Old Testament is about, and that is, is that all of the Old Testament testifies of Christ. Christ said, search the scriptures, they testify of me. The only scriptures that uh, were inside of the time period that he spoke that at is the Old Testament. There was no New Testament. So all of that testifies of Christ. That's why I say it's under the canopy of the person of Jesus Christ. So when you look at the unnamed prophet and you look at Josiah, John 5.39 should be at the forefront of your investigation. And the unnamed prophet and Josiah testify of Christ uh, both individually and collectively. So when you're going to study them, it's a classic PAL, right? Pack a lunch. This is going to take you a lifetime, frankly. It's going to take you lots of years. Um, I'll talk about that a bit. When I first began the unnamed prophet, it was almost 30 years ago. And I... uh, I recognized as much as I could, and then as I went back through it, I kept finding more and more things. That's just how the Bible works. It's for us to detect as much as we can unearth, though we're going to only see dimly, right, as in a mirror, but then soon face to face, 1 Corinthians 13:12. Deuteronomy 34:7. Face to face is Deuteronomy 34:7, right? So I can I can see this face to face in 1 Corinthians 13:12, then I can find it in Deuteronomy 34:7, Deuteronomy 34:10. And that's Moses. I slipped Moses in there. I can't help myself. It's a compulsion because of Jude 9. Uh, some would call it an appetition. I have an appetite for it and I cannot stop myself from doing it. I know. I I used to have a little kid in my audience many, many years ago, he would look at his mother about halfway through the lecture and he would scream at her, or ask, her ask her in a whining tone, Mom, make him stop, which was his polite way of saying, tell him to shut up. And uh, I haven't forgotten him. I, I'm certain that he's very successful in prison now, I, I think. No, I'm kidding about that. He was probably, he's probably very successful. Okay, where, where, where was I here? We, and by we I mean me, undertook list making last Sunday. I had a list and I kept erasing it because I had so much material I couldn't get it in one list. And I finally stopped writing it because we ran out of time. But what I was trying to do was compile that which required cardinal attention, that which had primacy, that which I believe was the most important part of First Kings 13. Um, and obviously that's a subjective uh, process, and and, um, and some of you out there in the Internet might dissent to my list, having no regard that I am an HDRP, um, and you think that your list is better than my list, and it might be, but... Uh, okay, no. <laughs> and you don't have any respect for my custody of the most holy dry erase marker. Notice that it's... It's working better today because I replaced the ink. Yeah, that's not easy. I normally just spray it all over Terry, but she wasn't here today. <sighs> but anyway, it's my list. I get it. I'm undeterred by your thoughts. and I want you to have your own list. Your list has as much validity as mine, I'm sure. Um, and so you should begin doing it that way. I believe it's my method, but feel feel free to steal it. I think it is the most 
valuable way to analyze something. You see all the pieces come in a chronological order sometimes. Sometimes they're not sequential, sometimes they are. But you get to see all the pieces, and so you have all the spinning plates, as I like to say. So that, I believe, is the primary uh, uh, way to establish John 5.39. Look at every single piece you can. There none, nothing is coincidental. Nothing is arbitrary. Everything has significance, great significance. So we're going to take on uh, today uh, uh, 1 Kings 13, 8 through 10, 1 Kings 13, 16 and 17, and 1 Kings 13, 21 through 22. Those are the prohibitions, or the commandment which the Lord commanded at 1 Kings 13:21, and they go like this. Oh, let's erase that. Over. I'm gonna run out of room. <sighs> you shall not eat bread. This is what God gives to the unnamed prophet as instructions. You shall not eat bread, nor shall you, you shall not, I'll just keep the same format, drink water. You shall not return the way you came. Those are his three that God gives. And then 1 Kings 13.22 opposes the same way that you came. I don't mean the same. I should put the same in there. These are the commandments from God. 1 Kings 13.22 exposes the penalty if, if these commandments are not followed. That's, this is, these are the, this is the penalty that is secured to the commandment. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father. So the penalty is what? This is a death penalty, a capital offense. Uh, and so that, of course, is the key to the whole thing. If you violate any of these, it is death. Your corpse. Now that notice that what he says, corpse. He doesn't say you, person. He says the body. So we have this really fantastic demonstration of the difference between the body oops, and the soul or the mind or consciousness or I can keep going here or the spirit. You know, all of that. So we have the body and the consciousness, the mind, the soul, Spirit being separated here. He says this, the corpse, which is the body, the physical element of the two elements, right? That's important, very important. It's a capital offense. It's a death penalty if any of these are violated. And that's so interesting to me because I know that's the key to the whole thing. And last week, hopefully, um, when I read that part of the Tomb of Your Fathers, 
it's not a simple concept. It's incredibly difficult to figure out. Do not rush to the conclusions as to the meaning of the tomb of your fathers, as many have done. It's called the disgraced view. They believe that the old or the unnamed prophet was disgraced because of his violation of these three things. And he violated all three of them. A singular one is a death penalty. But he violates all three. Does he do so knowingly? And of course I said that I believe he does, did so undeceived. <sighs> but he's not disgraced. Uh, he's a portrait of Jesus Christ, John 5.39. He's not disgraced. He's not forgotten. Obviously he's not forgotten. Did that heater come back on? You think it's not going to overwhelm the sound? Okay. Well, then we'll let it. It's telling us that it's cold. I should say really fast a couple of things here before I keep going. Uh, it's going to be what? 15 below in Muldoon. That's your, you guys' neighborhood, isn't it? It's going to get really cold next couple of days. And then it'll warm up. And so we have heaters running as we have to in Anchorage, Alaska. I have a wood stove and we have all kinds of auxiliary heat. I also should point out that this really fast, the uh, receptor binder, binding domain um, of these variants. If you're watching these variants here, I'm just diverting now, aren't I? Because the heater came on and distracted me. But we have, what's at stake here, or what is, it, what is the principle, is the receptor binding domain of the COVID-19 glycoprotein spike. So that little spike has a binding domain in it. I draw the picture, but you've all seen it. And I talked about how the 501st position now changed from an N-amino acid to a Y-amino acid. And that made the binding affinity of that little protein spike far more effective, far more, uh, how do I put it, mathematically probable. And it, of course, binds to the amino acid pocket of an ACE2 receptor, an angiotensin-converting enzyme in your mouth and your nose primarily, but also in your lungs, in your heart, in your endocrine system. So this is this is not good. Now I watched it for a while as to uh, uh, rates of death and rates of severity, which means does this variant cause a more severe infection, and does it have a higher rate of death or mortality for the people that is are particularly susceptible? And the evidence is starting to come in, and the evidence is is that it does. And now we'll wait some more. But we're watching these spikes in the UK. The UK is over 100,000 now um, mortality events. That is not a, a big country. It's a sixth of the size population of the United States. And it has 100,000 deaths. So it would have the equivalent of 600,000 deaths for us. So it has a much higher mortality rate. So does. You start adding Great Britain, uh, or the United Kingdom, I'm sorry. You add... Uh, uh, Portugal, which is in trouble right now, Spain and Italy. Uh, who am I leaving out? Um, uh, Poland, Germany, France. You combine the deaths of those countries. Uh, they have nowhere near the geographic size, nor the, they're, they're, not, they're not close. Not I shouldn't say close. They are close to our population, but mathematically they exceed us significantly They're, those those countries are just named I'm not, I'm not including Norway or Sweden Belgium or any of the other uh, smaller countries in Europe but the, those larger countries with respect to population uh, their death rates are, are much higher than the United States statistically they have at least 450,000 deaths Brazil, Mexico, South Africa 
And then again, we have these variants that are coming out of Brazil, coming out of South Africa, and coming out of the United Kingdom. And they're coming over to the United States easily because we're a free country. Free countries have free travel, free expression. Uh, I know there are some that don't want us to be a free country, but we'll deal with that some other day. Again, that's control. Who wants to control you and who wants you to be free? Huh? It's pretty easy to figure out who's on whose side when you understand the Bible in that. Anyway, uh, I'm just saying that... I expect that this, these variants are going to hit hard in the United States, just as they have in England, and we could see uh, a difficult uh, road to get ahead. I watched all the New Year's celebration. They were so happy to leave 2020 behind. Uh, be careful. Uh, if this is an end times event, in other words, this pandemic with the nation of Israel in place, if this is end times, then this is exciting. Comfort yourself because we're at the end. And so we'll see. It may not be. I don't have a book to sell. So otherwise I would say over and over again, buy my book. It seems to be all I hear on these, on these programs anymore. My book, all the books that they, they write are behind them, all the pictures of the book. Give me a break. Quit trying to sell me a book. Just tell me something valuable. Okay, where was I? Uh, the list, the prohibitions. You should now eat. You should not eat bread. You should not drink water, nor return by the same way you came. And again, that's a death penalty. His corpse, the physical death, the physical body. And the question becomes immediately: Is why is that a capital offense? And I'll repeat it again. I believe that that is the key to understanding all of it. What all of those means, it, the, the body and the corpse and the death penalty aspect of it, reveals why God gave those three particular commandments, those injunctions, if you will, of abstainments. Again, the unnamed prophet is a type of Christ. Keep that to the forefront. Uh, I did a lot of that in Lecture 128 uh, on January 24th with regard to whether or not he was disgraced. So if you didn't get that... Um, that's where it's at. So again, I'm assuming that you have some familiarity with the with the subject that we're in today. So, don't eat bread. Don't eat bread, surely die. If you eat bread, surely die. Don't drink water, or surely die. If you drink water, surely die. Eat bread, surely die. Drink water, surely die. Don't return the same way you came, surely die. And as with lecture 128, I am using the language of Genesis 2.17. That is the tree of good, of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Good from evil. Sorry, I said it wrong. I'm doing that on purpose. That's the lesson plan, in case you think, don't think I have a lesson plan. And the Lord God, YHVH, whenever you see the Lord God in the Bible, and all four letters are capitalized as they are in the in the passage I'm about to give you, that is the Tetragrammaton. That is the ineffable, unpronounceable name of God. They used to know how to pronounce it, Y-H-V-H. They lost the ability to pronounce it because they said it at a time when the music was too loud. That is the apocryphal story that's in the historical accounts. But they have Israel no longer knows how to pronounce the ineffable name. It means, I am that I am. 
Now, I don't know that they really have lost the pronunciation or they're just hiding it from the Gentiles. There's, there's room to believe both of those aspects are true individually and they may be true collectively. So that's another complete story. But I'm saying drink water, surely die. Return the same way you came, surely die. Eat bread, surely die. That's the language of Genesis 2.17. Eat from the tree of good from evil, surely die. The knowledge of good from evil, surely die. And the Lord God commanded Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good from evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It is a death penalty capital offense. Why? See, that's the key question there, too. Why these? Why are they a capital offense? Why was Adam's eating of that tree a capital offense? God told him not to. Why a capital offense? And again, the the commandment is an injunction. It's a prohibition. Both Adam and the unnamed prophets share a commandment from the Y-A-B-H that is an abstainment, that is, again, the I am that I am. And failure to forbear invokes a penalty of physical death so how are they connected? How is this in First Kings and Genesis 2, 117? How are these two, all of these wrapped up into the same subset, if you wish to think of it that way? They are clearly interlocked. And to repeat, the unnamed prophet is a type of Christ. Adam is a type of Christ, Romans 5, 14. I've been saying that over and over and over again. And I have what I think are good reasons. You may disagree. You're allowed to disagree with me. It's transitive property, is it not? If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That is uh, mathematical certainty. Basic transitive property, uh, eighth grade geometry. Yes, sir. Does this also tie into the what they were told when they came? Uh, the wise men came. Is it Christ for the first time? There's no question that it does. So Dave got ahead of me, way ahead. Now I can't even bring it up. Oh, no. But the the Magi of Daniel were told not to return the same way they came. Exactly. And and so we have to go find out all of those things and put them all together. But then we obviously will, uh, even even though now the lecture is pretty much done. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding about that. Yeah, I'll figure it. I'll figure out a way to to deal with. But anyway, okay. Never let never let somebody who doesn't exist ask a question ever again. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so much for the big finish. Okay, but again, basic transitive property. If Adam equals Christ and Christ equals the unnamed prophet, then Adam equals the unnamed prophet, or any other combination of that will always work in the transitive property. And for those who are now shouting out there on the internet, I didn't know there would be math. Let me just say this as much as I can. There will never not be math. Okay? There's always math. And math is it. And I'm going to prove that to you as lectures go by here, because we're going to get to differential equations. And you can thank Isaac Newton for that, Leibniz, but mostly Isaac Newton in my view. You can curse Isaac Newton if you want. Or you can thank Isaac Newton, which I would think would be most appropriate. And again, I can hear the questions. Is he really going to make us learn the principles of differential equations? 
and that's again the screaming internet. And the, you scream that out at me, and I can hear you. You don't know it, but our technology is so fantastic that we take pictures of all of you simultaneously. We're just like Facebook. We're completely or Google or Amazon, and we get all of your information and we get your credit card numbers. So that's how we're doing it. In case you wonder how we manage to operate in such a fantastic environment as this. That's hopefully understood as a joke. But if you scream at me, is he really going to make us learn the principles of differential equations? Uh, that is a rhetorical question. <laughs> anyway, differential equations describe functions and derivatives over time. That's why they're so important. And that's, that, that's a way of saying that differential equations describe physics and biology. Now, they describe many other things, but I focus on physics and biology. If you want to think of it this way, differential equations uh, describe the creation, how it works. You can even begin to infer why it works the way it works. Uh, describing the creation is a worthy endeavor of the true church, and we have conceded that to the monistic, agni- uh, atheistic, evolutionary philosophers. And we should never have done that. But the church got focused on the wrong things, unfortunately. We're, we're clawing our way back, but not like we could have. We should never have lost. The church should never have been replaced as the place of wisdom. But it got lazy. Okay, anyway. Along with abstainments, Adam and the unnamed prophet share Psalm 16.10. So Psalm 16.10, which I brought up, over and over and over again. That is the corruption of the body of Christ. The Holy One, the Holy Thing, will not go into corruption. And so Adam and the unnamed prophet share that. That's what the, what's called the Jude 9 body trait, if you will. That's also shared by Moses. Because Adam equals Moses. Uh, Adam equals the unnamed prophet. Moses equals the unnamed prophet. Jude 9 has to be part of all of this. And it is. That's where Michael and, the, and Satan contend over the body of Moses. That uh, I believe is a uh, is represented in Psalm 1610 because he obviously like Adam must have a situation where he has uh, continuity with the body of Christ laying in the tomb without going to corruption. By Christ's body could not; it was impossible for it to go to corruption. That's not the case with Adam's and Moses's. That makes sense. When Adam's body is laying there in Genesis 2-7, waiting for the breath of the spirit of life to be put into it so he could become a living being, start to imagine his body. Is it moving? Is there motion? Is there cell function? Or is it in a static condition, completely uh, stopped? Everything in it stopped, and then it is placed into motion. And what would place it into motion? And I would submit to you resonance. Resonance, vibration, if you will. The voice. The breath and the voice. So it's a different situation with respect to Christ because it is impossible for his to go to incorruption. Into corruption. So, um, uh, and, and again, the preserved body absence uh, of the breath of life, the mind, the consciousness, the spirit, the soul. We see that in the unnamed prophet. We see that in Moses. We see that in Adam. And of course, we saw that with Christ's body as well. His, his mind, if you will, even though he is omnipresent, somehow is, is detached from his body. Those are mysteries that, uh, uh, that is, uh, the mystery of the incarnation, the greatest of all mysteries. Uh, 
Okay, as not only do they have that though, they have the sacrificial death facet. And and we again we should expect it. If one has it, the others will have it. Christ has a sacrificial death, Adam will have a sacrificial death. If Adam has a sacrificial death, the unnamed prophet will have a sacrificial death. If the unnamed prophet has a sacrificial death, then Moses will have a sacrificial death. And so we should be able to expect it and locate it in every one of these narratives, if you want to think of it that way. So why these specific abstainments for the unnamed prophet? To repeat them again, don't eat bread, don't drink water, don't return the way you came. How are these bonded together? Because they are individual, but they are a collective. So they relate. They have an order. He put them in an order. Why this order? Why not you shall not return the time the same way you came? Why isn't that first? There's a reason it's not first. There's a reason it's third. How come these are not inverted? There's a reason it goes bread, water, return. What's the reason? How are they bonded why is this order? How do we figure it out? I'm open for suggestion. I have a plan. People think I don't. Well, the first thing we do is John 5.39. We find Christ in those. He's going to be in them. Because he's in everything in the Old Testament. Every single page testifies of Christ. Again, John 5.39. So um, immediately I can find Luke 4, Matthew 4, and Matthew 27.34 here. Matthew 4 and Luke 4, as you know, if you've been around for a while, that is Christ in the desert. Referring, um, it refers to uh, Exodus 17. But it's Christ in the desert. And he is refusing there to turn stones into what? Bread. Huh. How interesting. Probably a coincidence. There's no relationship. Blah, 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 blah. Obviously, when Christ is dealing with bread and the unnamed prophet is dealing with bread, then I can begin to say, okay, are these things, is this the Old Testament complement of the New Testament verse? And, the, and also I have the fifth saying of the seven sayings from the cross. I have seven sayings from the cross. John 19.28 is the fifth saying, and that is where Christ says, I thirst. Now, he's omnipotent God, and he cannot be thirsting for water, but he gives you the implication that he is. What is he thirsting for is the debate over that ver- or those two words. It comes into play. I thirst will lead us to drink no water. I'm just saying, how is that so? becomes the next question. And Christ calls out to his mother. What does he say to his mother from the cross, right? He says, woman. Who's the first person in the Bible to say woman? A first human being, that's Adam. So the first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, right, says to this being that is brought to him, he says, woman. Christ says, woman. The second Adam, the last Adam, both of them say woman. Obviously, that's got to be set together, right? Uh, that's John 19, 26 through 27 and Genesis 2:23. Does the omniscient God in the flesh, who that is Jesus Christ, He is the I am that I am, can doesn't He does He remember that Adam named the woman woman? Of course, He does. 
That's why he said it from the cross. And the most obvious of the obvious relationships of these three prohibitions then would be Leviticus 17. What? Leviticus 17 is the sanctity of blood. Why does the lecture seem so discursive, people are asking. We're going all kinds of different directions. None of it makes any sense. It doesn't even seem to fit together. How is that always the way it is around here? Because I like it. And I do it on purpose. As I said last week. For the life of the flesh, Genesis 2.7, Genesis 7.22, Ecclesiastes 12.6 and 7, the life is in the flesh, right? The life in the flesh. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17.10, Leviticus 17.13 through 14. No one among you, God says, here comes what? What do we call this? No one among you shall eat what? Blood. It's a prohibition. What do you think the penalty of the prohibition or the abstainment or the injunction is? Just guess to yourself. You can say it. Don't say it aloud and ruin the lecture again. Okay. No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger that dwells among you eat blood. Leviticus 17.13. So what did I do? I found these. I went and found the others, and I wanted to see how they all fit together if they do. And will they fit together? Well, absolutely they will. That's how the Bible is written. John 5.39. Can't say that enough. I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off. What is that? It's a death penalty. So I'm comparing injunctions that have death penalties is what I'm doing. Now, define death penalty. Again, I point out that the, this, the death penalty is a corpse. Is that how God defines death penalty? Or is that how we define death penalty? The eating of blood is a serious, incontestable defiance. If you eat blood, now what is eating blood? How do you eat blood? It says eat blood. What do you use? A fork? You freeze it? Make a popsicle? I should stop with that. Okay. How do you eat blood? I will propose to you that the prohibition is you shall, you shall not. I forgot the not can't read and write fast enough. You shall not drink water. Leviticus 17 says you shall not drink blood, essentially, doesn't it? Why? The life is in the blood. That's the reason. But why? What does that mean? If you drink blood, you bring certain recompense. Being cut off from God is the lake of fire, second death. That's eternal death, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. You're getting cut off. God cuts you off. That's not good news. So what are all of the meanings of this? But again, focus on the why. Now, where am I going to go since I've got blood and water together? 
And blood, the living water came out of blood. I'm sorry, the living water came out of Christ, and the living blood came out of Christ when he was when he allowed himself to be pierced, because you cannot pierce omnipotence without his cooperative assistance, right? So you think you're doing something, but he's really doing it. So living blood and living water comes out of him on the cross. That's incredibly important to know. So now I'm going to put blood and water together elsewhere in the Bible. Where am I going to go first? I'm going to go to Exodus 7, 17 through 18. The pools of water, the streams, the ponds, the waters of Egypt became what? Blood. It's the first of the ten plagues. What's the obvious question? Why is it first? God could do anything first. He put the bread first. Why did he put the water and the blood first in Egypt? What is he saying? He's saying something here, in here and here, and in the order and in the collective, in the, in the togetherness of those three things. He's also doing the same thing with the ten plagues. First plague is the water, the streams, the pools, the, the Nile, the water. Exodus 7.21 says the Egyptians could not drink the water. That's what he did to them. No water to drink. What do you have to drink? Blood. But you can't drink blood. They didn't know that at the time. And they wouldn't drink it. It's an interesting... uh, Aspect, I believe, and I think it, it begins to tell us what's going on with you shall not drink water, shall not eat bread, and you shall not return the same way you came. The second trumpet, Revelation 8, 8 through 9, the sea becomes blood. When it says the sea, it could easily be referring to uh, not the entire ocean system that we consider. It could, when John talked about the world and the sea, he was referring to the Middle East most of the time, and he's referring to the Mediterranean Sea most of the time. So you have to look at those and say, okay, is this, the, is this restricted to the Mediterranean Sea in uh, the first trumpet, or I'm sorry, the second trumpet? The sea becomes blood. The third trumpet, Revelation 8, 10 through 11, many men died from the bitterness of the water. The river and the springs, one third of the river and springs become poisoned. So I have poisoned water and I have water and seas being turned to blood if I add the ten plagues with tribulation. Of course I will. The plagues and tribulation have a tremendous relationship. And that returns us to Exodus 15. Moses is bringing Israel to the bitter, poisoned waters of Mara in Exodus 15. Let me put that. Let me write at least Mara. Mara essentially means poisoned. Exodus 15. So Moses has, has, has come to Mara with Israel. And this is subsequent to the Red Sea crossing. So here they go. They get through the Red Sea. That was an incredible... Uh, event where God delivered them across the Red Sea in the pattern of the Crucifixion Week. Another story, actually. In the pattern of the seven feast days. Israel couldn't... That had happened on the Kirim first fruits, so those of you who don't, who don't follow those kinds of things. Israel could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter and poisoned. And what did they do? Did they say, oh, no problem, he just put us through the Red Sea, 
piece of cake. E- I'm sorry, piece of pie. Easy as cake. I get those backwards. But what did they do instead? You're absolutely right, Terry is, is helping me. They complained against Moses, what shall we drink? That's what they did. What does that mean? Why are they complaining? What shall we drink? They, again, they just came out of Egypt. They just came across the... Who sees... Who experiences the Red Sea? Uh, I mean, the water's raised up vertically and stay there in that position there, frozen there, if you will. Were they motionless? Does he does he re, re, eliminate motion? Now he can because of course of the time and time's relationship with Moses Moses with motion, and he's outside of time. But they just came through that, and now they're saying, "What shall we drink?" And Moses cried out to the YHVH, the Lord, the I am that I am, and, and uh, Exodus fifteen twenty two through twenty five. And what did God do? He gave him a tree. He showed him a tree. And Moses took the tree and he put it into the poisoned water and the water became clean, pure, sweet. Exodus 15, 22 through 27 is evocative of 2 Kings 6 where Elisha cuts off the branch and throws it into the Jordan River and he floats the precious lost sunken to the bottom axe head out which, as you know, if you've you've been here at all, I say this one as often as I can, too. It's a picture of a person losing his soul and Christ recovering it for him and reuniting him in what Christ defines as life. It is in the river of death and judgment that descends from Adam, Joshua 3.16. And the branch is Christ, Ecclesiastes 12.6-7. He has control of your soul. Your soul returns to him. Why? Because he's the one that breathes it. Genesis 7.22 He's the one that gave it to us. So it returns to him. And he will give it back to you and your body and combine you again. That's Genesis 2.7 So he does that kind of stuff. That's what he does. He's the resurrection and the life and the only one that can be because he is the one that gives you all of these things. But for today, just notice that the poisoned waters of Mara are the antecedent uh, to the bread from heaven. In other words, I come across the Red Sea. I, I'm, I don't have any water. Oh, that's Watch this lady back this vehicle up. <laughs> I mean, is she impressive? Oh, she's not performing like I want. Now, now look at her fail today. Uh, <laughs> I have seen her do amazing things with this truck. Get right in this spot. <laughs> But I have seen her go around cars parked in front of her in the driveway. And just go, you are good at this. Not as impressive as she normally is. I put her on display and she failed me. But, uh, you'll have to come back and watch her do it again someday. It's, it's, there's ice on the road. Yeah, okay. How does that fit into the lecture? I, I have no idea. Terry got distracted. <laughs> yeah, Terry. Terry shrieked. She thought she was coming. To, you thought she was coming to our driveway, weren't you? I don't know. I just in yeah. the red car it caught my eye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But again, uh, the poisoned waters are the antecedent of the bread from heaven. They come across the Red Sea. Then they have poisoned waters. Can't drink the water because it's poisoned. 
they are unhappy. They went through a great miracle, which has a positioning with resurrection to eternal life. They came through salvation, and they're, they're upset. They're complaining to Moses, who is a type of Christ, right? So they are saying, Moses, you don't know what you're doing. We want water. Now, there's two million of them. That's a lot of water, right? Um, and then after, uh, after the poisoned water, I have the bread from heaven. And what is the bread from heaven? What's the name of the bread from heaven? It doesn't really have a name. It has a question. The question is, what is this? That's what the word means. They never named the bread. They used to ask the question, and the question became the name of the bread. But the bread never has a name. It's the unnamed bread. Again, you shall not eat the bread. But I have this fantastic order of, of the Red Sea, the poisoned waters, and now the bread. So we have... The meaning of the bread. Christ solved the basic mystery of the bread for us. The manna, if you want to think of it that way. John 6.35, 6.41, 6.48, 6.51. He said, I am the bread of life. And he's referring to the manna. To the what is it. What is it is how you would describe Christ. Because how do you describe God-man? It is the mystery of the incarnation, right? How do you just, it's a hypostatic union. How do you describe him? You can't describe the infinity in a physical body. It, it is an indescribable, unnameable being, right? Even though he has many names. Jesus Christ again, I am the bread of life. So we have the main meaning of the bread. The bread you shall not eat the bread of life. I could easily juxtaposition those or substitute them, right? I will do that transitive property. Uh, so what else is in the manna? I, now I've got the, again, the fundamental principle, but it's like George Washington Carver in the peanut. I've got a long, long way to go here. Um, I am the bread of life converges with Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took the Passover bread, the unleavened bread, broke it, blessed it, gave it to his disciples, said, take, eat, this is by what? Body. Why did he do that? Why is bread associated with the body of Christ? And is bread here associated with the body of Christ? But first we've got to attach it to the body of Christ. Why does he say bread and my body do this? Inner, inner face. Uh, but it's communion. And we get some explanation uh, because we have Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is the ancient of days described. How is he described? He's described as the same as Revelation 1, 17 through 18. How is he described in Revelation 1, 17 and 18? He's described the same at Matthew 17. He's described the same at Matthew 28, 3. How is Christ described in all of those? He's described as white as snow. Wow. Why? What? What else is described white as snow? Something else is. But he's described as pure white, Genesis 2.12, a precious white stone. That stone listed in Genesis 2.12 is a precious white stone. Numbers 11.17 has the same information. Psalm 78.22-24 provides additional insight to the 
to, to this, this, this particular situation because I have Mara and then I have Mana. Think of it that way. Mara and I have Mana. Now, bitter waters and bread of life. Bitter waters made sweet. And if you look at Psalm 78, 22 through 24, it provides insight again to Exodus 15, 25 and 16, 4. Because both of these are something that we have tried to cover recently. They are both tests. Now, is this a test? I want to know. So probably ought to read those passages, uh, Genesis 15, 25, and 16, 4. And we will as I speed along. But uh, first, noticeably, at least I'm hoping it's noticeable, probably not noticeable, but hopefully every one of you listening, digital and analog audience, you put together the lesson plan already. You figured out what the point is, yay a point. Why did God issue these three commands? That's the point. That's what we're trying to do. Now I'm going to add to it. Eat no bread, drink no water, you shall not return the way you came. Eat no bread in Bethel. Drink no water in Bethel. Do not return the way you came to Bethel. I intentionally left that out because HTRP. Why did God say these three commands to the unnamed prophet in Bethel, in Bethel, in Bethel? Evidently, God has an issue with Bethel. Bethel, as said last week, Genesis 28, is the holy place. It's the ladder. It's the uh, I am that I am. I am the God of the living. It's all of those wonderful things. But it is not what it was now here in 1 Kings 13 and 1 Kings 23. Yeah, 1 Kings, 1 Kings 23. What is the totality, the, composi- the composing, I'm sorry, composition is probably what I'm searching for. What is the composition of the danger? Because I have danger in Genesis 2.17. Don't eat it or you die. I have danger here. Don't do, if you do this, you're going to die. Uh, what's going on in Bethel? What's the Genesis 2.17 comparative to, to what's happening in Bethel? And I'm going to tell you right off the bat. I'll give you an answer. Yay, an answer. Ezekiel 10, where the Holy Spirit leaves the holy place of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And yes, I am overtly implying that there is great peril in Bethel. Something is so bad that God is issuing a warning. God is exposing the imminent adversity that has come to Jeroboam and his Moloch priests. Again, remember the evil one says in Psalms 10.6, I shall not be moved. I will never be in adversity. I will never be in judgment. I will never have the wrath of God upon me. That is the evil ones who say that. They say it today. They've said it all throughout history. It is the lie of Satan. There is no consequences for my evil. I can do what I please. And God says, oh no, that is not how it is. He is giving advance warning as He always does. Genesis 6.3 gave 120 years of tribulation. He gives you three and a half years of most incredible evidences of who He is and what He thinks and what He's doing that you could ever hope for. And they still take the mark. The handwriting on the wall, Daniel 5.25. There's all kinds of places you can find Josiah gave you three, gave him 300 years. He gave Israel 300 years before Josiah came. 
Essentially, the three injunctions given to the unnamed prophet and revealed to Jeroboam and his priests, including the sons of the old prophet, are messages from the one in whom time consists. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He has time inside of him. He sits outside of time. That he's saying, judgment is coming. you got 300 years and we're going to have a mess here. And eat no bread, drink no water, do not return the way you came. Eat no bread in Bethel, drink no water in Bethel, do not return to Bethel the way you came. Jeroboam heard those <coughs> excuse me, portentous premonitions, and he had the physical sign of the healing of his withered arm. So he, had, he heard those warnings, and then he had his arm healed. Nonetheless, he became bathed in evil. He completely disregarded it. And he was marinated himself in evil. He did not repent. He accelerated 1 Kings 13, 33, 1 Kings 14, 9 through 11. And that's where God, 1 Kings 14, 9 through 11, was God condemns Jeroboam to disaster. When God says you are now in disaster, that is not the death of the body. That's the death of the body and the soul combined in the lake of fire. Compare Jeroboam now to the old prophet who comes right after him, right? I said compare Jeroboam to the unnamed prophet, but you really... I'm not, I'm sorry, I said, I said the old prophet and the young prophet, unnamed prophet, are typically positioned. But take the young prophet out, or the unnamed prophet out, I think he's young, and put him with Jeroboam. Jeroboam doesn't repent. He hears the warning, doesn't affect him. Gets more evil, not less evil. You get warned by God and you're evil, you become more evil. But not the old prophet. He places his bones with the bones of the unnamed prophet and he cries over him. He grieves for the unnamed prophet. He weeps over him. First Kings thirteen, twenty nine through fifty two I'm sorry, through uh, thirty two, twenty nine through thirty two, proclaim that doom will surely come to the altar at Bethel and the shrines of the high places. That's what the old prophet says. It's surely gonna come. He's coming. You can now make the position that Christ is coming, right? So so juxtaposition, the weeping, the mourning of the old prophet to the evil Jeroboam. The old prophet says the, author, the altar at Bethel and the shrines of the high places are going to be destroyed. Now, what makes him do that? Why does he say that? I'm going to put my bones with the bones of the unnamed prophet. I'm going to bury him in my tomb. There's a Nicodemus element there. I said that last week. And then he says that what this man said will be true. The word of God will be true. Jeroboam said, I'm going to get more of you. Keep in mind the withered hand arm sign is attached to the Antichrist, Zechariah 11.17, and therefore to Judas. And when you recognize that, uh, it's also connected to Satan's sentence, his sentencing where he is cursed in Genesis 3.15. That explains what Christ said at Mark 14.21. Because Christ says, the Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is delivered. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. There's a reason God says that about Judas. And that takes you to Job 3.16 where Job said, I would be better off if I were still born. Still born. Not, not delivered. Okay, really fast. I am almost out of time, aren't I? But I'll make it, because I am a professional. 
Exodus 15:22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. That's important, right? <coughs> Probably three days and three nights. Um, now, the, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were poisoned or bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called poison or bitter. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statue, statute, that's God made a statute and an ordinance for them. And there he tested them. So there's a test. How did they do? Pass, fail. How'd they do? I would say obviously fail. For today's question, what is the test? You might remember this question from Exodus 17, 1-7, where Israel accuses God of what? Being the source of evil. They say, you're evil. You you're brought us out here to kill us. Kill our children. Kill our animals. You lied. You're a liar and a murderer. That's the lie of Satan. And they said that to the face of God, just as Satan has said it to the face of God. The wife of Job, Job 2.9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? She said to Job, curse God and die. There's symmetry between the wife of Job and Israel at Exodus 17.1-7. They both essentially say the same thing about God. So that's how Job figures into this. Satan is testing Job. And God is permitting it. And Job does not fail. God gives us tests. Will we pass? What is he testing us for? We are never to test God, Exodus 17.7, because doing so always devolves into accusing God of being evil. So that is helpful to answering why he is testing us. And what he is testing for. Okay, now, Exodus 16.3. Ah, and the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. In other words, if only God had murdered us in Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, well, they were slaves and starving to death. Uh, For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and then the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them. Okay. Well, what's being established here? The pattern is established. Israel accuses God of evil whenever they had any adversity. They accuse him of exactly what Satan accuses him of. Every single time. You're a murderer, a liar, you brought us out to murder us. You're evil. And that's the opposite of Job, who never charged God with wrong, Job 1.22. And all this Job did not sin with his lips, Job 2.10. What, what would have been the sin of his lips? He wouldn't do it. Never accused God. The obvious is obvious. He, he, if he had cursed God... If he had repeated the lie of Satan to the face of the loving, merciful, long-suffering God of creation uh, who wills that none should perish. He doesn't want any to perish. That's an important understanding of God's mercy. To accuse him of an evil thought. Job never did it. Israel constantly did it. They never stopped doing it. They probably haven't stopped doing it yet. God has no evil thoughts. Not one. His thoughts are not our thoughts. 
Okay, the, the one of the singular keys to this that stuff to explain it. Oh my gosh, there goes the bell. And I did this when I was teaching school. Everybody jumped up and cheered. <laughs> Yay, the bell rang. Mr. Prosser, we got to get to our next class. And I go, no, I got one more page. <laughs> Been doing this for 30 years. Okay, uh, uh, Psalm 7822. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation, yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna on them to eat. So now we got evidence of what's going on in this test. They did not believe in God. What does that mean? They believed he existed. They'd seen it. They didn't believe in his character, and they did not trust in his salvation. And those two would go together. So there's your answer, yea, an answer, because they did not believe in God in the context of Exodus 15, 16, and 17, because they did not believe in the goodness of God who gave them bread. That's his answer. You don't believe in my goodness. You don't believe in my salvation. My answer to you is I'm going to give you bread. And we know the bread is Christ because he says so. John 6.35 He's going to give himself. He's, he's the bread. Take me, Genesis 15.9, right? Eat this bread for it is my body, Matthew 26.26. 26. They did not believe in the character of the I am that I am. They did not trust in his salvation. And the answer to that, therefore, he gave them bread to eat. So what did they, what did we just learn from Psalm 78.35? Bread is connected to believing in the pure white goodness, the absolute white of God, as well as being coupled to trusting in his salvation. His salvation is revealed as Jesus Christ, whose very name is salvation, as you know. Thus, eat no bread in Bethel is reflecting those truths somehow. Because the bread is Christ. But he's not in Bethel. Good for you. Yay, you. Okay? By not eating bread in Bethel, what is God, through the unnamed prophet, proclaiming to Jeroboam and his child killers? These ones that are sacrificing these innocent children. I'm going to leave the obvious obviousness of that answer for you to anatomize. Consider that uh, disentanglement. Not entanglement. Disentanglement. If there's entanglement, there must be disentanglement. But we only have one third of the warning kind of figured out here. What are the meanings of drink no water in Bethel? Well, Exodus 15 and 16 are bread. What might come next? That would be Exodus 17. This is why I get the big money, right? What's Exodus 17 about? Exodus 17 might be about water. Oh, looky here. Moses smotes the rock, 1 Corinthians 10.4. Living water came forth from the smote dead rock. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.4 tells us that the rock is Christ. John 7, 38, 39, John 4, 14, Exodus 17. The death of the rock which flows from which flows living water. John 7, 38, 39, John 4, 14. Say, Christ says, I'm the living water come out of the rock. That's me. I'm the rock. The living water comes out of me. Whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst. That's why he says, I thirst. Fifth saying. Do you think he remembered when he says, I thirst, 
that he said, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. He's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God in the flesh. The water that I shall give will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, everlasting living water. As Jesus Christ, Jesus God, defines living. John 4.14 is the voice of God himself in the flesh. He's the rock of Exodus 17 that gives living water. They're complaining about water again, Exodus 17. He gives it to them. Exodus 17 is perhaps the greatest symbol of Christ. but Symbol, not portrait, symbol of Christ in the Old Testament. The rock from which life flows. That's John 8.12. That's Genesis 1.3 and 4. Life flows from Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4 All drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ is the rock. He's the Petra. Petra, it means what? You know? Yes, cliff. Ha! Cliff sign. So there's a cliff here involved that gives living water. Obviously, if there is living water, there must be what? Dead water. I got sweet water and I got poisoned water. First Corinthians ten one through four places the pillar of cloud, the bread from heaven, the bread of life, the living water, the water of life into an assemblage, a mathematical set. I got cloud, I got bread, and I got water. That's what it's doing in First Corinthians ten one through four. It's how do those fit together? I got to put the cloud up here now, don't I? It's obvious to see the bread of life and the water of life in the set, but how is that pillar of cloud included with those two? Remember, the pillar of cloud leaves the temple, the holy place, in Ezekiel 10. For today, just consider the unnamed prophet cannot eat bread in Bethel. He cannot eat bread in Bethel. You shall not eat bread. Well, the truth is, he cannot eat bread. You shall not drink water. He can't eat water. There is no bread and there is no water in Bethel. Bethel has no bread. He eats no bread because Bethel has no bread. It's impossible to eat bread in water. What am I saying here? Why am I saying this? He cannot drink water because Bethel has no water. It's impossible to drink water in Bethel. Again, more what am I saying and why am I saying that? When God speaks, it's incumbent for us to properly define what he is saying. What do you think he's saying when when you read bread and water? You're thinking he means bread and water. What does God mean by bread and water? Set aside your definitions and start thinking his definitions. You know what he said has to be more complicated than, than Twinkies and Wonder Bread. And, and what do they call it? Evian, which is naive backwards because they just got it out of your faucet and sold it to you for $2. In other words, what did God mean by bread? What did he mean by water? Obviously, he did not mean bread and water, did he? The way you think he means bread and water, the way most people read that. The unnamed prophet knew what he meant. He knew the symbolism of God's commandment, the hidden meaning. He meant bread and water. The way he means bread and water. The unnamed prophet had a role. He was to be an example, a witness. So this is part of his, he's given this assignment. This is part of his assignment because it testifies of something. Obvious question, who's he witnessing to? And he's, again, he's sounding an alarm. There's impending doom. That's 300 years, but it's to, that's how God thinks. I'm going to give you warm. warning. 300 years to do what? 
Stop killing children. And being that I'm unconventional by default, some might propose idiosyncratic, others would say eccentric, some would say kind of classed. Uh, can't argue with any of that. What's the cliffside maxim? Were you peculiar before you came to cliffside, or did cliffside make you peculiar? I think the evidence overwhelmingly has answered that question. Anyway, the first thing I did when I read this passage 30 years ago, I read the story of the unnamed prophet, who's clearly a type of Christ, is to look at all the other prophets. Do I have any other unnamed prophets? I couldn't find any. They're all named. This is the only unnamed one. But i got to look at all of them. And I, I, found, I figured out Josiah, who dies at Armageddon, I mean, come on. He's buried in his own tomb. Josiah did everything he could do to turn the wickedness of the people, and they did not turn. Jeroboam did not turn. The death of Josiah, Josiah is inexplicable when you first look at it. Why did he die trying to fight this pharaoh from joining forces with the Assyrians? I mean, it makes no sense. He just could have stepped out of the way, but he didn't. He decides he's going to fight the pharaoh. And he's at the front. And he's killed. How can the king of Israel be at the front and how can he be killed? What's he doing? Josiah uh, is amazing. But anyway, I found a prophet that I thought fits here. Jonah. Jonah was a reluctant prophet. He was supposed to go to the Assyrians, Nineveh. He hated them. He hated the Assyrians. He wanted all of Nineveh to die. He could he, was, he did everything he could to make them die. If you're going to make, give me this assignment, I'm not doing it. He wanted them to perish. He ends up loving his poisonous plant. And then he is the sign of Jonah, and he is honored in Scripture. But God is not willing that any should perish, and he forces Jonah to go to the point where he resurrects him. And Jonah dies, and he resurrects him. Death couldn't keep Jonah from testifying. And what did the and Jonah walks through Assyria, Nineveh, and what happens in Nineveh that didn't happen in Bethel? They all repented. They did. So I'm tying the unnamed prophet to King Josiah and to Jonah, and there's where I gave you the answer. Because we have this third injunction uh, to decipher this returning thing. And Dave gave that away because those magi had to return a different way. And everybody says it's because Herod would kill them. Everybody says that the unnamed prophet had, he had to re, they'd kill him if he returns the same way. The lion. I mean, listen, obviously they can't kill him. God has to intervene for them to kill him. And he, he does the opposite. It, it, it is an interesting aspect. Don't, don't say to yourselves, oh, Herod is going to kill God. Oh, come on. We have to go to Egypt or Herod is going to kill Christ. Herod can't kill Christ. It's ridiculous. Quit being ridiculous. Okay, we'll be back on the 21st and solve all of that stuff in five minutes. Thank you.